I'll be reading John chapter 17, starting at verse 12, if you'll follow along with me as I read in preparation for God's word being preached to us. Starting in verse 12 of John 17. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me. And I guarded them, and not one of them perished but the son of perdition, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. I have given them your word. And the world has hated them because they are not of this world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. For their sakes, I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth, the word of God. At this time, those who are going to children's worship, uh, ages three through kindergarten, you are dismissed if your parents allow that, and we will meet you in the back. Al? Good morning. Banished. Even though Laris expected it, he was surprised at how deeply the judgment hurt. See, Laris was a lazy and selfish boy from the magical island of Recluse. But Recluse is the home of the Order Mages, a people dedicated to discipline, hard work, and perfection. Laris never fit in, and everyone considered him useless. He had no craft. He was undisciplined. He gave up at the slightest hindrance he felt put upon every time he was asked to help out. He'd rather spend his time idling the day away in vain pursuits, and he was bored by just about everything. And so he was deemed a threat to the community and expelled. What do you think of that, kids? What do you think of being rejected by your own family because you don't measure up? Well, it's just a story, but it resonates, doesn't it? Doesn't it seem from time to time that we find ourselves useless, that we too are undisciplined and just want to be left alone to enjoy our own private pursuits? that we too are careless in the things we think, say, and do, and that despite our best intentions, or because of ill intentions, we sometimes do more harm than good. We all have days when everything goes wrong. You make a grave error at work, one that won't soon be forgotten, and you come home and kick the dog, blow up at the kids, and then your spouse. And that irritating neighbor... The one who thinks that all Christians are hypocrites. The one that you've been trying to witness to. Yeah, that one. 
He chooses that day to rub you the wrong way. And you confirm his suspicions that your niceness is just an act. And at the end of the day, you feel just useless and a danger to everyone. Well, fortunately for you and me, we have a powerful prophet, priest, and king who does not cast us away based on performance, but one who prays on our behalf that we will be useful. Today in John 17, 12 through 19, we will look at one part of Jesus' high priestly prayer in which I believe he shows through his prayer that he is not done with us. And I have three points. Jesus enlivens and guards me. Jesus conforms me to God's standards. And Jesus gives me missions. Let's pray. Our gracious God, I ask that your spirit be with each heart here. I ask that the spirit will apply the word of God to our hearts and that you will be glorified by the obedience of your people. Amen. Our first point then is Jesus enlivens and gardens me. Please listen to the inspired, the inerrant, the infallible, and the authoritative word of God in John 17, 12, and 13. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you've given me. And I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that the scriptures would be fulfilled. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. This is the last part of Jesus' high priestly prayer. From here, Jesus will be arrested, beaten, tried, and crucified. Imagine, knowing that in less than 24 hours, you'll be nailed to a cross. And worse, that you'll be forsaken by the Father. And yet, you spend those last few minutes in prayer for your disciples. So we're at a moment of transition, a moment from what was to what will be. And did you notice that Jesus is speaking in the past tense? I was with them. I was keeping them. I guarded them. Something's happening. Something's about to change, and we see that in verse 13. But now I come to you. And so Jesus says that while he was with them, no one perished except the son of perdition. Now we know that uh, the son of perdition is Judas. And he's speaking of Judas, though, as if he's already dead. But Judas is still alive at this moment and has yet to betray the Lord. So how can Jesus speak of Judas as dead when he's still physically alive? Well, I think it's like Paul telling the breathing Ephesians that they were dead. In Ephesians 2.1, we read, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Physically alive, but spiritually dead. See, it takes an act of God to give us spiritual life. And we see that in verse 4. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. But Judas has not been made spiritually alive. He's spiritually dead and very useless. Not so with the other disciples. They're spiritually alive. In John 10.10, Jesus says, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. And that's the first criteria for being useful 
we must be spiritually alive. And so Jesus gives his disciples abundant life, but he doesn't stop there. He guards his disciples from slavery to works. Take a look at Matthew 15, 1 and 2. Then some Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. Man, makes me want to get up on the roof with a fiddle and sing tradition. But I, I won't unless... Good choice. See, the Pharisees were all about holiness on their own terms. It didn't matter what God's law really said. It only mattered what they thought was the way to please God. And so they believed they could meet God's standards of holiness by following certain traditions that they invented. And woe to the child of Israel who did not comply with their rules and regulations. So the recognized religious leaders of the land confront Jesus over his disciples' behavior. You know, it's like when I was little, a neighbor would grab me by the ear, march me home, knock on the door, and as soon as my mother answered, they'd say, do you know what your son was doing? In those times, I wanted to be anywhere else. I think my mother was of the spank first and ask questions later persuasion. But that's not what Jesus does. He steps between the Pharisees and the disciples, and he takes the Pharisees to task for hypocrisy and for commandeering the law of God to their own selfish ends. He explains that holiness is not found in unthinking, slavish devotion to a set of extra-biblical commands. Holiness is found in a changed heart. And so Jesus guards his people from slavery to works. Jesus also guarded his disciples from physical harm. In Mark 4, Jesus and his disciples are on a boat, and a fierce storm overtakes them, threatening to capsize and drown them all. But Jesus got up and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Hush, be still. And the wind died down, and it became perfectly calm. How many times driving have we come away without a scratch when we should have perished? And we see Jesus guarding his disciples from a lack of faith in Mark 9. There a man is appealing to Jesus for his son. He said, from childhood, he answered, it has often thrown him into fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for one who believes. And immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. How often have you and I been here? How often have we faced an intractable problem over our children? Is there anything more important to us than our children's welfare, their happiness and salvation? I mean, here's a dad who loves his child and yet has no means to help him. He's at the end of his rope and he cries out to Jesus for help and yet he can't quite bring himself to fully trust. If you can. He equivocates. He's had so many disappointments in life he just can't take another. And so he tries to protect himself by seeking aid with an out. Yeah, I asked him to help. But I knew it was too big of a problem even for him. The word of God is a penetrating force as we see in Hebrews 4.12. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit 
of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And so Jesus, the Word of God, speaks. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for one who believes. And Jesus' words pierce that callous heart. This man confesses his sin, he makes a confession of faith, and he pleads for the grace of sanctification. And maybe the point of this story is not that Jesus can heal a kid, but that he can conquer our unbelief. He can protect his people from falling away, no matter how dire our circumstances, and no matter how deep our wounds. And so Jesus guards us from a lack of faith. And he also guards us against arrogance. Take a look at Matthew 16, 23. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Imagine the arrogance of pulling Jesus aside and saying to him, listen, bud, this is not happening. You know, arrogance is always based on a false impression of how the world works and my place within it. No creature has the right to tell the Creator what should or should not be, but the Creator has every right to tell His creatures how things are. And so Jesus, the Word of God, speaks again. But He turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me. For you're not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. He points out the impure motivations of Peter's heart. And then Jesus moves on. He doesn't harp on it. He doesn't hold it against Peter. He doesn't exclude him from the group. But he does guard us from arrogance. And at least for me, he guards me from stupidity most of the time. See, I'm a basket case when it comes to telephone numbers and addresses. I think Jennifer was three, and kids before cell phones, we went to New Jersey uh, for Thanksgiving with my sister, and I kind of knew the way there. I knew the exit from the interstate, and I knew that first turn to make. But halfway there, I realized I didn't know her telephone number or her address or what to do after that first turn. I hoped I could find her house, but I figured Thanksgiving dinner might just be turkey sandwiches from a gas station. But you know, as I made that exit from the interstate, I merged into traffic right behind my parents' car. He guards me from stupidity most of the time. But you know, Jesus does more than guard us. <clears throat> he gives us joy. Back in John 17, 13, But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. Jesus speaks the word of God, the gospel, so that you and I can have his joy. There's 26 verses in the gospels that speak of joy. Some of them are joy at the birth of the Savior. But quite a few speak of a double-sided joy. Luke 15.10, we see one side. In the same way I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And in Matthew 13, 44, we see the other side. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field in which man found and hid again, and from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. 
The repentant sinner receives joy at finding the kingdom of God. And at the same time, heaven rejoices over that sinner's repentance. It doesn't always start out that way, does it? As the word of God penetrates our heart, as we understand the enormity of our sin, as we understand the eternal significance of our sin, we are overwhelmed with guilt and dread. Remember Christian in Pilgrim's Progress when he met Mr. Worldly Wiseman? Christian, why, sir, this burden on my back is more terrible to me than are all these things that you have mentioned. Worldly Wiseman, how camest thou by thy burden at first? Christian, by reading this book in my hand. God's word can have that effect. In Exodus 34, 7, we read, Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. Now there is a burden. Who of us is not guilty? But you know, we really need to read more of that passage. Let's start at verse 6. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet, he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. We're all guilty before the Lord, and we all deserve that judgment. And like Christian, before we come to know the Savior, we can be filled with with dread. But notice... In that passage, how the offer of mercy came before judgment. Our Savior, Jesus Christ, the Word of God Himself, satisfied the righteous wrath of God's holiness that sin be punished. Mercy is available to all who will come to Jesus. But for those who do not, there is judgment. Now those who come to Jesus are not left in a morally neutral position. He does not say to us when we first believe, there you go, you're clean, but you're on your own now, so don't get dirty again. No. He gives us His righteousness. His blood covers our past, present, and future sins. Now there's a reason for joy. Do you feel it? And just as an aside, heaven feels the same joy over your brother and sister in Christ that is felt for you kind of puts our squabbles into perspective, doesn't it? You know, sometimes I lose sight of that joy. I find myself weighed down by the cares of this world. I forget I'm on a journey home. I forget that God is in control of all things, especially the hard things. And in those times, I need to grab myself by the neck and remind myself to look past my immediate horizon to the eternal. Like the hymn says, I need to turn my eyes toward Jesus daily if not minute by minute. How about you? Have you experienced that joy and just need reminders now and then? Or have you never experienced the joy of salvation? Are you still spiritually dead, deaf to God's word and blind to his glory? If so, ask the Lord to save you today. Ask the Lord to forgive your sins today. Ask the Lord to give you his righteousness and then you too can begin that journey home and experience the joy of salvation. Well, Jesus has been guarding his disciples from a dangerous world, 
from slavery to works, from lack of faith and arrogance, and he's been giving them joy. But those disciples are about to be scattered. Jesus is returning to his Father. He will no longer be physically present with his disciples. Does that mean that his guardianship has ended? Well, of course not. Jesus prayed, but now I come to you. Everything is changing. Jesus is going away, but the disciples are not left on their own. In John 14, Jesus said, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. And in 26 of that chapter, he says, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Did you hear that? He will bring to your remembrance all that Jesus said. See, it's through the Word of God that the Holy Spirit protects us and enables our sanctification and brings us to be more and more Christ-like. So Jesus makes me spiritually alive so I can be useful. He guards me from dangers and errors so I can be useful. And He gives me joy to sustain me on the long road home so I can stay useful. And that brings us to our second point. Jesus conforms me to God's standards. You see, he's not satisfied with just giving us life and watching over us. 14 and six through 16. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. So you knew there had to be a chiasm, right? When Jesus gives us God's word, it's not a neutral action. It causes us to be separated from the world, and the world hates us. But before we go on, we need to talk about the world. See, he uses that term 18 times in this chapter, and the bulk of those uses are in today's passage. So what does he mean by the world? Well, according to Pastor Vince, the world includes avowed God-haters, wicked and ungodly people, but it also includes newborn babies, kind and gentle atheists, moral unbelievers, and agnostics. I mean, there are certainly people filled with hate towards Christians and Christianity, Steven Weinberg, a Nobel laureate, said, For good people to do evil things, it takes religion. Thomas Paine, a founding father. The Bible, a history of wickedness that has served to corrupt and brutalize mankind. But that's not the majority. Most people are nice and polite. And I think people just want to work, raise a family, and get along. But there's a reticence when it comes to the gospel on the part of many. See, many are raised under a gospel of works. They think, hey, I'm a good person. I think the Lord will weigh the good and the bad in my life, and I'm going to be okay. And so they find the gospel offensive. I mean, after all, the church is the only group where you have to admit to being a sinner to join. Maybe it's that they don't trust the messenger. Some caricatures of Christians ring far too true. Well, whatever it is, when Jesus separates us from the world, we become alien to those around us. And I think that happens because our goals and desires change. Jesus said in John 14, 15, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And so that is what we try to do. 
But many see our obedience as odd or quaint. Some see it as judgment. Jesus has experienced it firsthand. There he is, minding his own business, healing people, preaching the word of God, feeding 5,000 here, calming a storm there. But the Pharisees took offense and plotted to kill him. They wanted Jesus to follow their moral code. And Jesus said, no, I'm not following your traditions. How about you and me? Do we experience pressure to conform to the world's views on money, power, and sexuality? In Romans 1, we read, And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they, only, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. See, the world wants everyone to join in in rebellion to God, but we can't. See, once we are justified by the blood of Jesus, the Holy Spirit and God's Word begins to act upon our conscience. Cheating on taxes, national pastime. Everyone does it. Keep what's mine, and then some. But then the Holy Spirit brings to mind, thou shalt not steal. The world says marriage is for my happiness. And so if I'm not getting happiness, move on. Find something better. But God's word says, be faithful. So simply living by God's standards causes the world to take notice and we can become persona non grata. Now it can happen in strange ways. I work with a lot of guys from military backgrounds with coarse language. Now, I was raised in hard scrabble coal country. And believe me, the guys up there can put sailors to shame. And so I've learned to let it go in one ear and out the other but as soon as they notice that I don't use that language, many of them begin to moderate themselves. I, I never say a word. I never judge people for how they express themselves, but some do take offense as they feel judged. So does this mean that the conflicts that we have with people outside the church are based on intolerance? No. Believe it or not, there are some people in the church, like me, with prickly personalities. Sometimes hatred by others is just desserts for my own behavior, and that's inexcusable. And so I need to work on being a better person and being more winsome. Now, in the outer portion of that chiasm, Jesus acknowledges that neither he nor we are a part of the world. But the inner portion is the main point. Keep them from the evil one. All that pressure to conform to the world is designed to separate us from Jesus. It's designed to make us want to go back into bondage to sin. But Jesus does not pray for us to be removed from that pressure. No, he prays that God will sustain us. And so we become useful through obedience. And by making God-centered choices, we preach the gospel to a non-believing world. The world as a whole might not like what it sees. But remember, the world is composed of individuals. And God can use our passive witness to change hearts and bring glory to himself. And that's a useful life. And as useful as that passive witness is, Jesus, in our third point, gives me active missions to perform. 17 through 19. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. For their sakes I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified. 
Now, I originally intended to pull a Pastor Vince and just preach on verse 17 because I love this verse. But who can replicate the Master? So, larger passage. <clears throat> Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. In the very next chapter, John 18, Jesus tells Pilate that he came to testify to the truth. And in verse 38, Pilate exclaims, What is truth? Well, here's the answer, Pilate. God's word is truth. And yet today, we see the word truth corrupted by our society. We've witnessed in our lifetime the concept of objective truth transformed into subjectiveness. Well, that may be true for you, we're told. Or my favorite, my personal truth is. But if something is true, it's true for everyone. Adam and Eve had a truth problem. The serpent asked, did God really say? And Eve responded with embellished truth. Isn't that an interesting term? Embellished truth. See, we can't bring to ourselves to say that we lied. We gave an embellished truth. A sort of truth. A not truth. And so Jesus prays that God will sanctify us in the truth. Now we see that word sanctify used three times in this short passage and it can be confusing. To sanctify something is to take something that is not holy and set it aside for holiness. And verse 17 fits that definition. We are to be holy. But it's a process called sanctification where God, over time, changes our affections and our inclinations. And yet, we see Jesus use that term for himself. So what's going on? As the second person of the Trinity... Jesus was already holy. He had no sin. How can he sanctify himself? Well, it turns out that sanctify can also mean consecrate. And that's how Jesus uses the term when applying it to himself. But we still have to answer the question, how does the truth sanctify us? Well, I think the answer is fairly simple. Uh, we already read it in Hebrews 4.12. For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. <clears throat> it penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. God's word is truth. If we read it, if we read it, it shows us where we fail to conform to the standards of righteousness. It convicts us of our sin, and it protects us from sin, as in Psalm 119.11, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. And so our first mission is to be sanctified by God's word. As Peter tells us in 1 Peter 1, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all your behavior. And so Jesus asked God to make us holy through his word. Do you believe that God's word is truth? Are you convinced in your heart that the entire Bible is God's word and that it is indeed the truth? We often ask, what is your only rule for life and faith? And the answer is the scriptures. We are to submit our beliefs and practices to the authority of the word of God. And yet, how many of us submit the word of God to tests before we accept it? How many of us come to the Word of God as fallen men with fallen intellect and attempt to judge whether or not parts of Scripture are believable? 
How many of us have placed observational science as a judge over the Bible? You know that same observational science that told us once the earth was flat and at the center of the universe? Now, observational science can be of great value, not as valuable as experimental science, but nevertheless, it can point to a new direction for experimental science. But it has to be taken with a grain of salt. Listen to this opening sentence in a very recent article from Cosmos. A new dino bird fossil has overturned more than a century of accepted wisdom about how modern birds evolved. Previous inferences from observations have proved wrong. So when observational science says Genesis 1 could never have happened, do we defer to science and invent rationales to keep peace between science and the scriptures in our minds? Do we invent those rationales so that we don't look foolish in the world's eyes? Do we say things like Genesis 1? It's just a story or a poem written by ancient men, and that's okay. It does teach that God is the creator, but that doesn't square with what Jesus said. He says, thy word is truth. Well, maybe we can tell ourselves that observational science and the scriptures are both true. Maybe we can convince ourselves that those days in Genesis 1 were really eons. But Strong's Hebrew reference says the meaning of the word day in Genesis 1.5 is day, as defined by evening and morning. Well, if we're going to go by observational science, perhaps we should see what a real observer said about Genesis 1. You know, second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ. Paul says of him in Colossians 1, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created for him. Do you believe that? Do you believe that Jesus is the second person of the Trinity? who raised himself from the dead and ascended into heaven, and that he is the agent who performed creation. We all know how Genesis 1 begins. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And in Matthew 19:4, look at what Jesus said. And he answered and said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? Do you think his choice of the word beginning was accidental? I do not. In this passage, Jesus says that marriage was a gift given to man from the very start of creation. So who's the authority in your life? Is it fallible science or is it the scriptures? The Westminster Confession of Faith says this about the scriptures. The authority of the Holy Scripture, for which it ought to be believed and obeyed, dependeth not upon any t the testimony of any man or church, but wholly upon God, who is truth itself, the author thereof, and therefore it is to be received because it is the word of God. The authority of the scriptures depends upon God, who is the author. Remember Jesus, second person of the Trinity, led a perfect life, died, raised himself back to life by his own power, defeating death in the process, the one who is synonymous with the Word of God. We believe the Bible is the Word of God because Jesus, our God, says it is.
And so we need to receive His Word with humility. We need to be convicted by His Word. We need to hide His Word in our hearts. We need to put His Word into practice. And in doing so, we put sin to death. And that's job number one. Put sin to death. And the more you do so, the more useful you become. We see our second mission in 18 and 19. <clears throat> As you sent me into the world, I have also have sent them into the world. For their sakes, I sanctify myself that they themselves also may be sanctified. First, notice the parallelism. As you sent me into the world, I also sent them into the world. Jesus isn't asking us to do anything he did not. Jesus came into the world ministering to people's spiritual, emotional, and physical needs. He consecrated himself to ministering to people, so much so that he did not waver from sacrificing himself on the cross. Can we do any less? Each of us has a different calling. Each of us has a different sphere in which we minister. Each of us is called upon to consecrate our life to answering that call. You know, even the thief on the cross was given a mission. He issued a gospel call to the other thief. Imagine that. In the midst of such terrible agony, to reach out to another. Are you ready? Are you ready to be useful and pour your life out for others? Starts with God. Jesus is praying to the Father to make this happen. He prayed it for His immediate disciples, and He prayed it for you and me in verse 20. And unlike that cold, orderly community of recluse, Jesus doesn't kick us off the island if we're useless. Laris was thrown to the wolves by family and friends. He was told, don't come back until you're useful. They cast him out with the expectation he would die quickly in a foreign land. They were more concerned with protecting themselves than with caring for a useless kid. But Jesus, our prophet, priest, and king, doesn't abandon us. Just the opposite. He gives us life, and he guards us on the journey home, and even when we fail, he is not done with us. Nor should we be done with the people who greatly disappoint us. We need to minister to each other as we make for home. And during that journey, He works with and within us to change us from selfish people into useful people. His Spirit uses His Word to transform our desires and to conform our behavior to be in sync with His law. And even when our actions betray our beliefs from time to time, even when we prove to our neighbor beyond a shadow of a doubt that we are hypocrites, Jesus continues to love and care for us. And over time, He helps us put the old man to death and strengthens the new. And because He loves us, He gives us purpose. He gives meaning to our life as we pour it out in service to others. Let us resolve today to be kingdom useful. And let's pray. Thank You, Jesus, for Your love and care for us. Thank You for Your Word. And as we go forth from here, I ask that you will help each of us to be useful. Amen.